This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Harvard University Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Six Faces of Globalization, Who Wins, Who Loses, and Why It Matters by Anthea Roberts and Nicholas Lamp. When it comes to the politics of free trade and open borders, the camps are dug in, producing a kaleidoscope of claims and counterclaims, unlikely alliances, and unexpected foes. But what exactly are we fighting about? And how might we approach these issues more productively? Anthea Roberts and Nicholas Lamp cut through the confusion with an indispensable survey of the interests, logics, and ideologies driving these debates. The authors expertly guide us through six competing narratives about the virtues and vices of globalization. To reveal fault lines that divide us, and points of agreement that might bring us together. Six Faces of Globalization, Who Wins, Who Loses, and Why It Matters, by Anthea Roberts and Nicholas Lamp, out now from Harvard University Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. What do we learn about the Cold War when we look beyond the superpower arms race and detente and instead examine the Third World and, quote, the events in those areas where the Cold War was actually being waged, where it was hot? One such place was Southern Africa, and Angola in particular. Today's episode is part one of my interview with the historian of foreign policy, Piero Grieses, on his book, Visions of Freedom, Havana, Washington, Pretoria, and the Struggle for Southern Africa, 1976 to 1991. Visions of Freedom tells the incredible story of Cuba deploying a massive military and social aid mission to defend Angola's government against a U.S. and South Africa-backed effort to overthrow the People's Movement for the Liberation of Angola, or MPLA. In early 1974, Portuguese colonialism ruled in Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, and Cape Verde. Whites in Rhodesia had declared their independence from Britain and maintained minority rule. Apartheid was the law of the land in South Africa. And South Africa ruled Namibia, then called Southwest Africa, as a colony. At the time, there was, of course, resistance. But that resistance seemed futile, except in Guinea-Bissau, where Amical Cabral's African Party for the Independence of Guinea and Cape Verde waged a tenacious guerrilla struggle. In April 1974, that guerrilla struggle pushed a group of Portuguese military officers to launch the Carnation Revolution, a coup that overthrew Portugal's military dictatorship and led to the independence of Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, and Cape Verde. But immediately, the U.S. and South Africa, with support from Mobutu's reactionary regime in Zaire, sought to back rival guerrilla factions, and then after the MPLA won and took power to overthrow the Angolan government through both direct South African intervention and support for UNITA, an apartheid-allied, anti-communist guerrilla force led by a truly vicious man named Jonas Savimbi. South Africa would have been victorious in Angola had Cuban troops and Soviet weapons not arrived to push them back. More than Angola was at stake— the entire regional order in southern Africa was on the line. Apartheid South Africa, backed by the United States, 
wanted to maintain apartheid, to keep Namibia as a client state if not a colony, and to establish apartheid-friendly governments in Angola and Mozambique along the lines of the regime in Zaire. On the other side of this divide was the MPLA government in Angola, supported by Cuba and the Soviet Union, which wanted to back the Swapo guerrilla movement's independent struggle in Namibia to victory, and supporting the ANC to topple apartheid in South Africa. So the struggle in Angola was a struggle for the future of the entire region. Apartheid South Africa's leaders understood this, and so did Cuba's. As Raul Castro put it, quote, Angola and the other countries will only be safe the day when apartheid no longer rules in South Africa. I cannot summarize the entirety of this incredible story in this introduction, not even close, but here are some key moments. After Cuban troops stopped the South African invasion in 1975, they established a defensive line of troops across southern Angola to protect the capital Luanda and the country's economic and population centers from South African attack. Meanwhile, the Soviet Union, mired in the military strategies of World War II, pushed the Angolan military, or FAPLA, to launch multiple disastrous attacks on UNITA rebels, operations that were crushed by South Africa's overwhelming military might. Ultimately, in 1987, Cuba, against the Soviet Union's wishes, decided to launch a massive attack on South African forces after intervening to save the besieged town of Quito Quanevale from capture. Cuba, fighting alongside FAPLA and Namibian Swapo guerrillas, pushed the South Africans back to the border, a series of events that was followed by Namibian independence and, ultimately, by the fall of apartheid in South Africa. Throughout this entire period, the U.S. sided with apartheid South Africa against Angola. That was true under Republican President Gerald Ford and his National Security Advisor and Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, under Democrat Jimmy Carter and his National Security Advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski, and then under a right-wing Reagan administration that pitted more real politic conservatives against the hardline true Reaganites. Time and again, the U.S. sided with racist reaction in Southern Africa. And yet, internationalist troops deployed by an island nation across the globe were victorious. As Gliesias writes, quote, The Cuban role in Angola is without precedent. No other third world country has projected its military power beyond its immediate neighborhood. I want to underline and highlight this right now. It's absolutely unheard of before or since for a third world country or even for a middleweight power to engage in this sort of military action. Foreign intervention is traditionally the preserve of greater powers. And Cuba's intervention at the invitation of the Angolan government and motivated by revolutionary internationalism and a deep hatred of apartheid was decisive. If Cuba had not sent internationalist troops, a South Africa-backed UNITA would have seized power in Angola, which would have led to the expulsion of SWAPO and the ANC, which could have very well meant that South Africa would have not only maintained control over Namibia, but kept apartheid in place until who knows when. There's a lot here. The book is long. This interview is coming in two parts. I am posting a link to some of the maps from Visions of Freedom in the show notes. If you're not familiar with Southern African geography, I encourage you to check out these maps. We'll have part two of my interview with Piero Glieses posted sometime soon over the next week. 
Before we get started, if you already support The Dig at patreon.com slash the dig, I hope you're getting our new weekly newsletter by email. If you're not receiving it, please check the Patreon website to make sure that emails from Patreon are forwarding to the correct address. If you're not yet a Patreon supporter, you can read our newsletters at thedigradio.com. Take a look, and then please do sign up and support us. We will send you our newsletter in exchange for a contribution of any amount at all. If you contribute at least $10 a month, we'll send you a book or books, a coffee mug, or a tote bag. But the most important reason to support The Dig financially is that your contributions are what makes it possible for me to do this show and to pay everyone who helps make it happen. What's more, your contributions allow me to pay guest hosts like Astra Taylor to cover for me. And that, for me, has been a game changer. Taking a week off every month or two makes this job a lot more manageable. It allows for me to prep for my interviews at a more humane pace, to dedicate a lot of time to organizing work here in Rhode Island, to exercise, and to just plain chill. So if you have not contributed yet, please take a moment to do so at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's episode one of my interview with Piero Glieses. Episode two will be posted sometime soon over the next week. Also, in advance, apologies for any pronunciations I butcher in this interview or that I just butchered in this introduction. Piero Glieses is a professor of American foreign policy at John Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies. He is the author of many books, including Visions of Freedom, Havana, Washington, Pretoria, and the Struggle for Southern Africa, 1976 to 1991, and most recently, America's Road to Empire, Foreign Policy from Independence to World War I. Piero Glieses, welcome to The Dig. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Southern Africa was one of the last regions of the world to undergo decolonization, not, not including, of course, Israel or the permanent settler colonies of the Americas and Australia, of course. But up until 1974, quite recently, the Portuguese were in charge in Angola and Mozambique. Whites in Rhodesia, after having declared themselves independent from Britain, continued minority rule. Apartheid was firmly in place in South Africa, and South Africa ruled Namibia, then called Southwest Africa, as a colony. And at the time, you write, hope for change in the region seemed bleak. Why? Set the stage for us here on the eve of Angolan independence. You had three major Portuguese colonies in Africa. The two you mentioned, Angola and Mozambique, and then Guinea-Bissau the smallest population also, and where actually the guerrilla movement was strongest. And you had only one guerrilla movement. In Angola, you had three guerrilla movements. And uh, not only they were divided and mutually hostile, but uh, the guerrilla war was fairly weak. We can come back to it. The MPLA of Agostino Neto had gained strength in the very early 1970s. And then because of a powerful 
a Portuguese counteroffensive and internal divisions, it had lost ground. In Mozambique, the guerrilla was going on, was stronger than in Angola, but was not strong enough to threaten Portuguese rule. So actually, if you look at Southern Africa, Portuguese rule was fairly secure. Uh, the problem was in Guinea-Bissau, and we should at some moment go back to Guinea-Bissau. Then what did you have? Rhodesia, today Zimbabwe. Well, the whites were in control. They were in firm control with limited assistance by South Africa. There was South African military police there, uh, use of South African airport, uh, helicopters and so on. You had uh, Namibia. I mean, look at the situation of Namibia, Southwest Africa. A guerrilla movement needs a rear base, a safe base from which to operate. If you look at Southern Africa in 1974, Namibia border with Angola, a Portuguese colony. Uh, with South Africa, it bordered with Botswana, which was a very weak uh, country, uh, militarily weak, population weak, uh, represented no danger. And the only connection with an independent, another independent African country was Zambia, but was a very tiny border, essentially a river on the river, the Zambezi. So the poor uh, Namibian guerrillas were acting without any uh, rear guard. If they wanted to get into uh, Namibia from Zambia, where they had uh, some training camps, they had to go through southeastern Angola, where the Portuguese hunted them, and the South Africans, with the permission of the Portuguese, hunted them. And in South Africa itself, the whites were in firm control. They had repressed uh, uh, African movements for uh, the end of apartheid. So the situation, it was really a backwater of the Cold War. No one was expecting anything particular to happen. Uh, the Soviet Union, on the side of those who helped the guerrillas, the Soviet Union was involved, but to a more, small degree, giving some assistance to Suapo, the Namibian guerrillas, uh, giving some tiny assistance to one group of Rhodesian guerrillas, and they were giving, they've been giving assistance to uh, the best group of Angolan guerrillas, the MPLA. But by 1970, Soviet assistance to the MPLA had virtually ceased. And by 1972, the only foreign country that was giving help to the MPLA, which represented the best of Angolan nationalism, was Yugoslavia. Cuba was giving moral support, uh, political support, but nothing else. Again, we can come back also to this. So, and uh, the, in, in Mozambique, the guerrillas were receiving help from China. There were uh, training camps in Tanzania, north of Mozambique. 
and you had Chinese military instructors there. But essentially, the outside role in Southern Africa was very limited at the time, through 1974. And what changes these is Something that seems very strange is the strength of the guerrillas in Guinea-Bissau, in tiny Guinea-Bissau. It is the guerrillas in Guinea-Bissau that broke the back of Portugal resistance. Where the Portuguese were losing the war, the colonial war, was in Guinea-Bissau, which had the best organized, the strongest guerrilla movement in Africa at the time, and enjoyed the support, in terms of the most important support, of Cuba and the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union was providing the weapons, sophisticated weapons, and the Cubans were provided, providing two things. One, instructors. Now, a Cuban military instructor is uh, what we call in Spanish un bicho raro, uh, something <laughs> peculiar, because the idea of the Cuban military instructor is that he fights with the students, with the guerrillas he is training. And you had the Cuban military mission, which was based in Conakry, the rear guard, Guinea-Conakry, but they were with the guerrillas inside Guinea-Bissau. And they were operating the most sophisticated weapons, weapons that required a certain level of uh, technical knowledge, mathematics, etc., etc., how to operate. And the Cubans had something else which was very important. The Cubans brought doctors to Guinea-Bissau. Until the Cubans arrived in Guinea-Bissau, which is 1966, there were no doctors with the guerrillas in Guinea-Bissau because the guerrilla movement at that time had no doctors. And I remember I went to Guinea-Bissau and interviewing a former guerrilla leader, a woman, I remember saying, once the Cuban doctors came, we knew that if we were wounded, we would not necessarily die. For the first time inside Guinea-Bissau, you had serious medical attention. And what you had through the end of the war, 1974, were Cubans military doctors. The only country that sent doctors inside Guinea-Bissau to fight, to be with the guerrillas was Cuba. Yugoslavia created a military, an hospital, a, but a, in Bokeh, well inside Guinea-Conakry. There were no Yugoslav doctors in Guinea-Bissau. It's only Cuba that did it. And all these people were volunteers. And so what happened, now we go back to uh, where you started, what happens in 1974 is that the Portuguese military, a group of Portuguese military, decided that the war in Guinea-Bissau was unwinnable. They could not win the war, and it was time to end it. They were not focused 
from Mozambique and Angola. Their nightmare was Guinea-Bissau. And the Cubans had sent a ground-to-air missile, uh, a kind of the stinger, the American stinger that will be developed a little later, <laughs> which allowed the, the guerrillas to shoot down Portuguese planes and Portuguese helicopters. And the Portuguese lost their only advantage that they had in Guinea-Bissau. And so what you have is, in April 1975, a military coup in Lisbon and the collapse of the Portuguese dictatorship. And essentially, the Portuguese military decide to decolonize. And this means not only Guinea-Bissau, where they were losing the war, but also the other Portuguese colonies, including the two large Portuguese colonies in southern Africa, Angola and Mozambique. But the, this void of repression that the Carnation Revolution in Portugal left that the U.S. and South Africa stepped into it pretty quickly, conspiring to ensure that the regional balance of power wouldn't change. And they sought in Angola to crush the left-wing popular movement for the liberation of Angola, or MPLA. What was the MPLA? Who was the MPLA's first leader, Agostino Neto? And why were the U.S. and apartheid South Africa so committed to putting an end to their rule? The MPLA was a movement, uh, a broad movement, which had a Marxist approach, African Marxism, which was different, of course, from European Marxism, but a class approach. And this is very important because Angola was a country where you had a white minority, where you had mulattoes, and where you had blacks. Plus, the blacks were divided in separate ethnic, ethnical groups. And the other two movements, FNLA and UNITA, were at an ethnic base. One was the Bakongo, the other was the Ovimbundo. The MPLA was the only movement which had, first of all, a conception of Angola as a whole, going beyond tribe, beyond ethnic group. And second, this was the view of the leaders, at least, that you were Angolan. It wasn't a question whether you were white, mulatto, or black. What was important whether was whether you supported the liberation struggle or not. And it was the one movement where you had in the leadership blacks like Agostino Neto, mulattos, and mulattos who looked white, like Lucio Lara. When I met Lucio Lara, I would have said this is a white person. So the MPLA had this message which was unique on two levels. One is not a question of color. It's a question of class and national liberation. 
and we are not interested in ethnic. We are Angolan as a whole. Plus, was the only movement that was interested in social reforms. And when I say this, I'm not even giving the impression of the Cubans. Two very interesting sources about the MPLA are the two U.S. officials who in 1975 knew most the MPLA. So let me backtrack a moment. And through 1974, until actually mid-1975, the U.S. presence in Angola was just the U.S. consulate uh, with the consul general. The United States had closed its CIA station in Angola in the late 1960s. It had closed it for two reasons. One, because they didn't feel it was necessary, and two, to please the Portuguese. And what you had was someone from the CIA station in Lisboa would go every three or four months to Angola, to Luanda, spend a few evenings and days with Portuguese military officers would give them a briefing and go back. So the CIA didn't know much about Angola. But what you had was the consul general. And uh, this uh, consul general, his assessment of the guerrilla movements, the three guerrilla movements in 1975, was that the MPLA was the only one that had honest leaders who cared for the Angolan people, who had a program, who could achieve something. And it represented no threat for the United States. And then you have something which is really paradoxical. In the summer of 1975, the United States uh, opened a CIA station in Luanda, long overdue. They sent uh, a head of station. Now, you asked who uh, Agostino Neto. Agostino Neto was a poet, but a doctor, uh, was a poet, was someone uh, who had studied in Portugal and become a medical doctor. He joined the resistance, had been jailed, and married a white Portuguese woman. So again, the different approach of the MPLA. Is someone who was not, uh, didn't have charisma, uh, was not a great public speaker, but was very committed to the welfare of the Portuguese, the Angolan people, and to the independence of the country. And, uh, you know, I've seen him, for instance, through reports of the German Democratic Republic, Agostino Neto went uh, there, you know, trying to get support for his movement. And I remember a long report where they gave the impression of NATO, how he struck them for his modesty, his intelligence, not asking for any personal benefit, etc., etc. Now, your question was, why did the United States and, and South Africa, uh, the axis of evil, uh, why did they try to destroy the MPLA? Because you have Portuguese decolonization in 75, and the civil war begins between these three movements. Basically, uh, let's start with this. Look, in late 74, early 75, spring 75, 
Disney really had no time to focus on Angola. Uh, it is interesting when you look at U.S. archives, you have memos to Kissinger by senior U.S. officials, meaning the director of intelligence and research, uh, the State Department, the assistant secretary for Africa at the State Department, the director of policy planning at the State Department, people at the level of assistant secretary, etc., who tell Kissinger, we have to choose a policy on Angola. They weren't telling him what policy he should choose, but they were saying, we have to make a decision. There is a civil war that's beginning. What do we want to do? Keep in mind, at the time, Kissinger was Secretary of State and uh, National Security Advisor. He was the foreign policy apparatus of a president Ford who had no idea about foreign policy, and all he wanted was to be elected president. Now, what happens in this period, of course, is the collapse of South Vietnam in April 1975. And uh, the Paris Accords, the peace settlement, uh, in uh, South for South Vietnam in 1973 was uh, the glory of Kissinger. Kissinger built his reputation with this, and now it was collapsing. So what happens is uh, Kissinger creates a task force led by the Assistant Secretary for Africa, the State Department, Nathaniel Davis, a tough guy, a hardline guy. Uh, to, to make suggestions, proposals, what to do in Angola. And when you have these task forces, essentially, the task force has to answer a number of questions. I will come back to this point. Uh, this task force included the CIA, the Defense Department, Treasury, Commerce, basically a lot of uh, people, the CIA, and uh, was shared again by the Assistant Secretary for Africa. Now, the, the report of this task force in uh, June 1975 was that the United States should not intervene. The United States should not engage in a covert operation. And the United States could very well accept a victory of the MPLA in the Civil War. This was the position of the bureaucracy. Now, first what happens, and then we try a little analysis. Kissinger receives the report. There is a meeting of the National Security Council. Kissinger doesn't say, I don't like the report. Kissinger doesn't say, I want a covert operation. Kissinger says, gee, I'm not convinced. Gee, this point doesn't convince me in here. Uh, go back and reflect a little more. But actually now the task force is going to be chaired no longer by the Assistant Secretary for Africa Davis, but it's going to be chaired by the CIA. It changes. And it is clear that Kissinger wants a covert operation. And Kissinger at the time used to have, when he was in Washington, weekly meetings with his senior staff which means people at the level of assistant secretaries. And uh, to look at the reports, the meetings of uh, Kissinger with his assistant secretaries in uh, the summer of 1975 is really 
and exercise in servility. Because once they realize that Kissinger wants a covert operation, everyone jumps on it. Everyone comes out in support of a covert operation, except two people Two people were not represented there, the CIA station chief in Luanda and the consul general in Luanda, and a guy who was half represented there with the assistant secretary for Africa, the one who chaired the task force before. The reason I say why he's half present there, and now I interviewed him, Nathaniel Davis, is because when they realize that is not, he opposes a covert operation. There are meetings to which he's not invited. And he told me those were the meetings, he thinks, where they were discussing the participation of South Africa, the cooperation with South Africa in the covert operation. To make a long story short, once Kissinger said what he wants, the next report of the task force is in favor of a covert operation. Now, why does Kissinger support a covert operation? The impression, you know, what I've told until now, I, I think I have the facts, I have the documents, etc. Now, it's my interpretation. Uh, Kissinger is not in support of a covert operation because a victory of the MPLA would be against the interests of the United States. He doesn't know anything about the MPLA. He couldn't care less. He knows very little about Angola. All his experts have told him that this is no threat for the interest of the United States. The report has been declassified, by the way. And so what is the problem of Kissinger? I think the problem of Kissinger is that he needs an easy victory. Because he has lost a lot of prestige at home with the collapse of South Vietnam. Uh, I've read declassified minutes of meetings of the National Security Council of the cabinet where someone like James Schlesinger, his great rival in the Ford administration, Secretary of Defense, basically says Kissinger's policy is failing. Kissinger's detente is failing. Uh, Vietnam has failed. Kissinger is coming under attack in the United States. People are convinced, are beginning to think that detente is not working in the interest of the United States. This has nothing to do with Angola. No one is thinking about Angola. And we can come back to this detente, etc. But essentially, Kissinger needs an easy victory. And the covert operation in Angola seems an easy victory. First of all, let me say this. If the United States has a covert operation in Angola, this covert operation is not going to be a secret because according to the new rules established by Congress, the Ford administration in late 1974, the, the Youth Ryan Amendment, uh, the Ford administration will have to brief a number of committees in the House and the Senate about the covert operation. So it will not be a secret. This is thanks to the Church Committee? 
Yes, that is because of the church committee, not just the church committee, because of Vietnam, because the administration has been losing ground in foreign policy, etc., etc. This is late 1974. And, of course, our allies will also be aware of this. Everyone will be aware, essentially, of this covert operation. And if you look at the situation at the time, it seems an easy victory because we are discussing with South Africa. South Africa is also considering a covert operation in Angola to destroy the MPLA. We will come back to South Africa in a moment. And uh, if you look at Angola, all the borders, uh, the MPLA has difficult relations with Congo-Brazzaville, which is the one that borders in the north, because Congo-Brazzaville has ambitions over Cabinda, the enclave of Cabinda, which is where the Angolan oil is. Uh, the MPLA has bad relate, poor relations with Zambia, which actually in 1975 supports another movement. The MPLA has terrible relations with uh, Congo Leopoldville, with Zaire, uh, which is ruled by Mabutu, a criminal and a corrupt guy. And to the south, you have South Africa. So in logistical terms, the MPLA is completely isolated. And the United States and South Africa will be able to supply the other two movements and assistance, assist the other two movements through Zaire and through uh, Namibia. And so it seems like an easy victory. And uh, I think that's why uh, Kissinger decides to intervene. He has nothing personally against the MPLA. He doesn't even know what is the MPLA. Uh, it's, you know, for someone, he was thinking at the level of Mao Zedong, the goal, when the goal was alive, uh, Brezhnev, etc. Angola is nothing. Uh, and you can see in the meetings with his secretary of state, assistant secretaries, that he had great contempt for the Angolans of every ilk, every movement. He called them thugs. Uh, so Kissinger intervenes for the most cynical and despicable reason, which is not because he thinks U.S. interests are at stake, but because he thinks his own interests are at stake. Because, my God, his reputation is the tough guy. And now you're at Vietnam. At least South Africa is a good reason to intervene. South Africa is fully justified in intervening because one thing that the MPLA had said from the beginning, and NATO, very unpolitically, kept repeating it in 1975, is that for the MPLA, the struggle would not end in Luanda. The struggle would end in Cape Town with the defeat of apartheid. If you were a, a leader of South Africa, white, of white South Africa, you were fully justified in thinking that if the MPLA won the civil war, the MPLA would open its country to all the guerrilla movements of Southern Africa. So it was a cancer that had to be destroyed. At least apartheid South Africa had a serious reason 
to intervene. Evil, but serious. But the United States intervened for the most absurd reason and against the opinion of the bureaucracy because Kissinger needed a quick and easy victory. Now, the one senior person in the bureaucracy who opposed the covert operation was his assistant secretary, Nathaniel Davis. He believed that the covert operation, first of all, was not necessary. Two, that the United States knew nothing about the Angolan movements. And therefore, we were going to support movements we knew nothing of. We didn't know the FNLA, we didn't know NITA, we had no idea of anything. And he thought, and that's where he was wrong, he thought that the covert operation would become public, could not be kept secret, because uh, too many countries would be involved, we would go through Zaire, etc., etc. And here you have something paradoxical. Yes and no. He was right insofar as the foreign press reported on the covert operation from the very beginning. Look, the covert operation worked in this way. Huge American planes would arrive at the airport of Kinshasa, Dili Airport, which had a civilian part and a military part and no security whatsoever. And everyone could see these huge American planes and weapons being unloaded from these planes, and there uh, these weapons loaded in small South African planes because there was a cooperation between the United States and South Africa that brought the planes to the FNLA in northern uh, Angola. And so you have the Portuguese press, the press of Zambia, think, little Zambia, that's already at the beginning of August, writes that there is a U.S. covert operation. The Zambia Daily News scooped the New York Times. The American press only started reporting on the covert operation in November 1975. Can you imagine? And this is because of what was a habit of the American press not to report on a covert operation while the operation was ongoing and until they received the green light of the CIA. And in Angola in 1975, two protagonists are parallel covert operations. It's not that we gave the permission to the South Africans. Uh, the South Africa, there was consultation between South African intelligence services and American intelligence services, the CIA. Uh, they informed each other mutually. The South Africans knew that the United States was launching a covert operation. Uh, the Americans knew it. And the two oper covert operations begin essentially at the same time, in July 75. And what you have is this. At the beginning, it seems something modest, which is, uh, we will send weapons. We, the Americans, will send weapons, and the South Africans would send weapons. Let me say something. There are 
two studies in, done in South Africa based on the South African archives about the covert operation in Angola. These studies were organized by the South African government in 1976-77. The South Africans decided they wanted a study of the covert operation. They created a committee, led a certain professor, Spice, to Toit Spice, was the main research, researcher. He was, uh, there was a, a committee that oversaw the work with representatives of the army, military intelligence, academia, etc. And Peace, Peace uh, wrote a report, finalized in 1978, but only declassified in 1988. A member of his committee, Commander Dupress, wrote a sister report, basically based on the same information, also declassified in 1988. These two reports are in Afrikaans. They've not been translated. And so most people don't use them. But what I'm saying about the South Africans and the covert operation, my main source are these two reports, then some interviews, but are these two reports based on South African documents. So what you have in July, beginning in July, the United States send, sends weapons to UNITA and FNLA. The South Africans send weapons to UNITA and eventually to the FNLA. We send weapons to the north in northern Angola, the South African southern Angola. But very soon it becomes clear that it makes no sense to send weapons to people who don't know how to use them. And so we have to escalate. Both sides escalate. The Americans and the, and the South Africans, they both send people to train these guerrillas. And there is a, a very amusing episode in uh, the book of... Uh, of the toit of peace, because there is a situation in South Central Angola in early October 1975, in which you have two groups of whites. You have a group of South Africans under code names, and a few miles away, you have a group of white CIA guys, each training Angolan guerrillas. And, of course, the South Africans know that those are CIA, and the CIA knows that those are South African military instructors, but they all respect code names, etc., etc. It's kind of a friendly joke <laughs> among friends. And so they have escalated. But this is not enough. Here you have something else that is interesting, so I make a little parenthesis, again, about the quality of American newspapers, the American press. And it is the following. A newspaper like the New York Times, I say the New York Times because it's the most important, did not have a correspondent in Angola. And they only start focusing on Angola when it becomes big news, when there is an escalation in the fall, essentially, of 1975. And uh, what is uh, the result of this? The report in the American press about the situation in Angola, about the civil war, in the late summer, early fall of 75, are extremely superficial because they are from people who don't know Angola. 
There is nothing wrong. The poor guy, the New York Times journalist, arrives at the airport in Rwanda, and you see, you can. There will be the same with Nicaragua. First of all, he takes a cab, and so the cab driver tells him something. He reports what the cab driver says, and then articles of terrible superficiality. And these articles say that uh, the MPLA is losing the civil war. It is, I'm talking now sep- August, September, early October, 75. If you look at the more serious press, the Portuguese press, which knew Angola, the French press, which knew Angola, I'm thinking of Le Monde, the best French newspaper. Uh, they had a guy who had been to Angola several times, etc. If you think of the South African press, which had... Uh, they had offices like the Rand Daily Mail, Rand Daily Mail. They had an office in Luanda until August 75. You see a very different version from the American press. You see that the MPLA is winning the Civil War. But of course, American scholars only read mainly the American press. So you read a lot of stupid things in books saying that these people were winning the Civil War. And the source is the New York Times. But if you go a little a step further and you look at what American intelligence was saying, I'm thinking, for instance, about the lengthy report of intelligence and research of the United States. I think the date is September 2075. They say clearly the MPLA is winning the Civil War. So what is our response and the South African response when we conclude in early October that the MPLA is winning the Civil War, and the official date of independence is November 11, 1975. In theory, there is still a Portuguese administration, which is pro forma, the Civil War is going on, etc. Well, it's a question of escalating. It has not been enough to send weapons. It has not been enough to send military instructors. And that, that escalation is, is South Africa in, invading. Exactly. Because we are not going to we are not going to send troops. And so we won't. And that South African invasion would have been successful if Cuba had not dispatched thirty six thousand troops to push the South African defense forces out. How did that escalation come about and where did Cuban troops come from and how why was Cuba's inter- intervention so decisive on the ground? First of all, let me start to say, how did the intervention come about? So let's spend a couple of minutes on the South Africans. The South African government, meaning the inner core that was aware of the covert operation, had been fully united as long as it was a question of sending weapons and military instructors. When it is a question of invading with troops, there is a division. Some people are opposed and some are in favor. And there I think the U.S. role is decisive. We tell the South Africa, go in, go in. Again, they are not doing it to please us. They are not our proxies. But the fact that the United States is with them, is behind them, of course, strengthens the hand of those who want to invade. And so what you have in mid-October 1975, you have a South African column, close to 3,000 men, uh, that invades Angola from uh, Namibia. And uh, they are very well equipped, motorized, mechanized, motorized, etc., etc. And the MPLA collapses. 
many Angolans resented this that I have written, that Angolan resistance, MPLA resistance collapsed when uh, the South Africans invade. Uh, they were being invaded by a very good army, and there were a guerrilla movement that wasn't particularly strong. They were not like the guerrillas in uh, Guinea-Bissau, for instance. And so the South Africans are advancing, advancing. The South Africans get to the coast, and there is a kind of highway that takes you all the way to Luanda, and the South Africans are advancing along uh, the coast. And you know, it's an immense country. Communications are very poor. There is a Cuban military mission uh, that has arrived, the first elements, in, in August, but the bulk of the military mission, 400 men, 480 men, have arrived in October. And the Cubans themselves, at the beginning, don't know what it is. These troops that are invading are they mercenaries? What are they? Until the Cubans realized that they're the South Africans. And as my great friend in Havana, Jorge Risque, who was for many years Fidel's point man in Angola, in Africa, told me, a military advisor is not like troops, a company of troops. A military advisors cannot stop uh, an invasion. For this, you need troops. And... Uh, the Angola, South Africans are advancing, advancing, advancing along the coast. And so in early November 1975, you have a desperate appeal, request from Angola, from Rwanda, by NATO and uh, his friends for the Cubans to help. And also the military mission is telling Fidel, we have to do something. Rwanda is going to fall. And uh, there is a meeting on November 4, first the facts and then a little analysis. On November 4, Fidel decides to send troops to Angola. And the first will be sent uh, the tropas especiales, the special troops, a particularly well-trained unit. And there is a meeting of Fidel with uh, these people who are going to Angola. And I read the, the minutes of the Fidel's speech. And uh, Fidel tells them, look, I feel very bad because I cannot come with you. And you're going to a very dangerous operation. And many of you may die. And your task is to resist as long as the MPLA resists. If Luanda falls, but the MPLA starts guerrilla fight against the South Africans, you keep fighting as guerrillas with MPLA. If the MPLA collapses completely, then withdraw, leave Angola. And I remember I interviewed eventually the deputy commander of this force who was at this meeting, Padron. And Padron told me, I thought, but where do we, we withdraw? <laughs> All the countries that border Angola are the enemies of the MPLA. We have nowhere to go. But they were very brave people. They went. And the sense look, in that sense, there is a similarity. 
not in a very strict sense, but there is with the Battle of Madrid. If you think about the Spanish Civil War, and you think about late October 1936, Franco's troops had been advancing from the south, and it seemed that they could not be stopped. And they were, up, they were basically the outskirts of Madrid. Morale very, was very low in Madrid. People really think Madrid is going to fall. And all of a sudden, you have a military unit that starts marching uh, through the streets of Madrid to go through the front. The front walls were at the University uh, Universidad Complutense de Madrid now. It's now with me. And these were Germans. They <laughs> were singing German. And they were marching in perfect order. And the people from Madrid thought, my God, the Nazis have arrived. And it was the first international brigade. Uh, which was going to the front, the 11th Brigade, and these were Germans. And they they helped stop Franco's attack on Madrid. And the Cubans stopped the, the advance of the South Africans. They stopped them south of... I interviewed once, I'm paraphrasing now, and I'm sorry to be paraphrasing, because the way she told it is very, very poignant. I interviewed a white Angolan uh, who was a member of the MPLA, a member of the militia, and she was a member of the militia. And uh, after the fall of the town of Lobito, uh, they were fleeing north. They were running away. They were on a track and uh, going towards Rwanda, but with the feeling that everything was lost. And all of a sudden, when they're approaching uh, a bridge, a river, and a br- they see a group of soldiers who are positioning themselves. And they have a strange uniform. And they were not Portuguese. And, they were, and these were the Cubans. She realized they were the Cubans. Or they stopped a moment and spoke with them. And she said, I felt happiness. But I also felt a feeling of shame because we were running away and they were there to stop the South Africans. And the Cubans stopped the South Africans. And until December 1975, you have an extreme difficult, extremely difficult situation because until December, late December 1975, the South Africans have numerical superiority. I mean, the South Africans were coming from Namibia. And the Cubans were coming from Havana. And here you have something else that drives me crazy. Uh, You find in most accounts, in most books, that there was an air bridge. The Soviets were bringing the Cubans to Havana, to Rwanda, even very serious calls. Now, no, the Soviets were miffed because they didn't want the Cubans to intervene. And they were annoyed. And the way they showed their annoyance was not to assist the the dispatch of Cuban troops to Angola. The first Soviet logistical assistance was in mid-January 1976. Until then, the Cuban troops arrived by ship and with the old Cuban transport planes, which were the Britannia. And the Britannia needed to stop twice 
en route to, uh, to Rwanda. The Cubans had one safe stop in Bissau, the capital of Guinea-Bissau, or Conakry, which was across uh, the river from Bissau. But uh, they needed uh, to stop another stop earlier. And it became a game of musical chairs because they started with Barbados, but the Americans realized it, fell on the government of Barbados like a ton of bricks. Barbados closed airport to Cuban flights. Then the Cubans found uh, Guyana, but the Americans fell on Then the Azores, the Portuguese gave the permission, but the United States fell on the, on the Portuguese government like a ton of bricks. And the poor Cubans were desperate. And uh, this really shows how intellectuals can be lazy. Because if you want to show the Cuban air bridge to Angola, ah, you don't have necessarily to go to, to Havana. You know, to go to Havana, to get access to the archives, takes time, it's a battle, etc., etc., fine. But all you need to go is to go to Washington because Kissinger was getting a daily briefing every morning on the Cuban lift. And these briefings were saying how the Cubans were going to Rwanda without any Soviet assistance. The Cubans were doing it all by themselves. And that's why they couldn't send many troops very quickly, because their logistic abilities were very limited. But they were able to stop the South Africans. The South Africans could have escalated. And the South Africans were willing to escalate. But the South Africans wanted something in return from the Ford administration. The South Africans asked two things of the Ford administration. One, we can deal with the Cubans, but if the Soviets intervene, then you have to intervene. And the second thing they demanded was that the United States openly, fully endorse the South African invasion in Angola. And Kissinger and Ford decided they could not afford that because of the racial situation in the United States, the prestige of the United States, the position of the Ford administration. Who, me? I don't know anything about this. South Africans in Angola, wow, I never heard about this. Because you see, once the Cubans stopped the South African advance, then eventually the press finally realized in late November, they, they, there were South African soldiers in Angola. If the Cubans had not intervened, the South Africans would have taken Luanda before anyone in the Western press said these are South African soldiers. But once the Cubans intervened, they stopped the South African advance. And eventually the Western press arrives in the area and starts seeing what's going on. And so, by late no early December 1975, it became public knowledge, even for the American press, that there was a U.S. covert operation in Angola, and uh, that the South Africans were in Angola. There is nothing more comic than editorials in the New York Times in late November, early December, criticizing the Ford administration for its lack of openness. 
such an important decision as intervening in Angola should have been the object of a discussion. But the New York Times knew about it since probably August 1975. And they kept their mouth shut. They didn't say anything. You know, it's like the Bay of Pigs. The American press was silent about the Bay of Pigs. Once the operation failed, everyone was talking about it. Angola is the same. The American press was silent about uh, the Angolan covert operation. Once it fails, and by late November 75, it has failed, then because <clears throat> the Cubans were arriving and the South Africans were not going to escalate. Without, you see, the situation is this. The South Africa could have crushed the Cubans in November, December 75, because the South Africa could have sent into Angola 30,000 soldiers against 2,000 Cubans, 1,000 Cubans in late November. You know, they were increasing slowly. But the South Africans were only willing to do it if the United States publicly gave the stamp of approval. And this, the Kissinger administration did not dare to do. In the wake of that initial Cuban victory, how did Cuba go about setting up its famed defensive line in southern Angola? What, what did that defensive line consist of, and what was the strategic logic behind it? Well, what happens is essentially this. After the victory in Angola, which the South Africans uh, leave Angola in April 75. There is a complicated situation. First of all, Fidel would have liked uh, to keep a large contingent of troops in Angola because the plan was never developed, at least as far as I can judge. But the idea was at some moment this can help for the struggle against apartheid. And the Soviets applied a lot of pressure on the Cubans to start withdrawing. Now, Cuba had the economic resources to launch an operation like the one in Angola in November 75, on Cuban planes, Cuban ships, was really totally a Cuban operation. But Cuba could not have kept a large army in Angola over time without the support of the Soviet Union because of the economic burden, the military burden, etc., etc. And the Soviet applied pressure initially. And Fidel agreed on a plan to withdraw the Cuban army over a period of three years, leaving only a military mission. But then what happens is that South Africa becomes increasingly aggressive. The South African government decided that they had to overthrow the MPLA government. The MPLA government was a cancer. And from their point of view, they were completely right. Because the first thing Agostino Neto did was to open Angola to the guerrilla movement of Southern Africa. I read the ones, the memoirs of the commander of the South African Army, uh, Armed Forces, General Haldenais. He became the commander of the South African Armed Force in 86, before he was the commander of the South African Army in Namibia, etc., etc. 
And he wrote in these memoirs that it was with the MPLA victory in Angola that Swap of the guerrilla movement of Namibia received the help that was necessary because all of a sudden they had the rear guard, which was Angola. That's when the guerrilla struggle in Namibia really begins. And uh, so the Angolans were also trained, uh, the NC of Nelson Mandela. You know, it was a very nice situation. Angola offered the land, the Cubans the military instructors, and the Soviet the weapons. It was a tripartite cooperation. And so you have this decision of the South Africans to overthrow the government in Luanda. And uh, meanwhile, you had the guerrilla struggle in Angola, Savimbi. This guy who had led one of the two guerrilla movements that were defeated in 75, he continued this armed struggle. That's UNITA, the National Union for the Total Independence of Angola. And he continued this armed struggle first in the southwest of Angola, supplied by the South Africans. And 77, 78, uh, the Soviet, uh, South African incursions in southern Angola are increasing, becoming more violent. The assistance to Savimbi is increasing, etc., etc., etc. And uh, the Cubans had basically their, their troops near the border. But the Cubans concluded in late 78 that they could not afford to keep their troops to the border, Namibian border, because the South Africans had a great superiority in the air, and they could have bombarded the Cuban troops, etc., etc. And what Cuba was doing was to create a defensive line about 250 kilometers north of the border. Uh, in the eastern half of, sorry, in the western half of the country, which protected uh, from the breadbasket of Angola, the highlands where you had agricultural production, the road to Rwanda, etc., etc. And that is the beginning of the Cuban defensive line. The Cubans essentially decided that with the weapons they had in Angola, they were not strong enough to uh, defend the far south of the country. And therefore, you would have this defensive line. And they had stopped withdrawing their troops. And so you had a number of Cuban troops in Angola, which in 78 was high 20s, and then gradually increased as the South African threat uh, increased. And the UFCIA reports at the time, uh, for instance, uh, in 78, the CIA report that says the Cuban troops are necessary to assure the independence of Angola, are the shield. Because without the Cuban troops, the South Africans would have invaded Rwanda. There is a very interesting conversation. I think it's September 1978. In Luanda, there is a relatively senior U.S. delegation that goes to Luanda, led by the Assistant Secretary for Africa, 
moves. And it's a conversation, hours of conversation, with the Angolan government, the prime minister, Lopez Nascimento, uh, the foreign minister, etc. And at one moment in the conversation, because the Americans are telling the Angolans, you have to get rid of the Cuban troops. We will establish diplomatic relations, but you have to get rid of the Cuban troops. And the Angolan foreign minister says, look, Let's assume we get rid of the Cuban troops, and let's assume we receive uh, very convincing information that the South Africans are preparing to invade, and we inform you. What are you going to do? And the guy moves, could not reply. He said, well, we would think we would discuss it in Angola, in Washington, etc. The point the Angolan was making is essentially what the CIA had made, which is the only defense for us are the Cuban troops, because the Angolan army is absolutely unable to stop the South African army. There is absolutely no possibility. And uh, you have a paradoxical situation. We are talking of the Carter administration. The United States maintained hundreds of thousands of soldiers in Europe to protect against a non-existent Soviet threat. There may have been a Soviet threat in the 1950s, but certainly there was no threat of Soviet invasion of Western Europe in the 1970s. And that we had the right to do. But Angola did not have the right to have Cuban troops to protect it from a real threat. The U.S. government acknowledged was a real threat. And what you have is that the strong man in the Carter administration was Brzezinski. And Brzezinski's position was the Cuban troops have to get out of Angola, regardless. I'm not interested about what may happen next. The Cuban troops have to get out of Angola. People in the State Department thought Brzezinski was wrong, but Carter supported Brzezinski. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin, bit.ly digjacobin all lowercase. The U.S. portrayed Unita and Savimbi as freedom fighters who had struggled against Portuguese colonial rule and then were continuing that struggle against a Soviet puppet government in Luanda. What, in fact, was Unita and who, in fact, was Savimbi? 
Okay, let's start with one particular point. Uh, Savimbi was a guy who wanted to rule Angola. And in the period, he had been fighting against the Portuguese. He was the leader of the smallest of the three guerrilla movements in Angola in 1971-1972. He was in the southeast of the country and in the eastern southeast in 1971-72. You also have a MPLA presence. What Savimbi did he made an agreement with the Portuguese military. And this agreement was that the UNITA would cooperate with the Portuguese military to destroy the MPLA. And what he did, and I'm paraphrasing now from a Portuguese report, was to provide guides to find where the MPLA camps were. Uh, the Portuguese were not interested in the military assistance of the UNITA guerrillas because there were just a few hundred. What the Portuguese wanted was to know where were the camps of the MPLA guerrillas, which in 1971 were several thousand in the east, southeast of Angola. And that's what UNITA did. And that, by the way, is a key reason by why the MPLA was so much weakened by late 72, early 73. Savimbi was not a puppet of uh, the South African, the Portuguese. He was just doing his own interest, eliminate the rivals, and someday independence will come. And then, now I'm jumping, uh, when the Portuguese collapse, Savimbi is looking for support from someone. And both Savimbi and FNLA, the other movement, contact the South Africans. But before this, let me say something which is more important. Uh, the first information about Savimbi cooperation with uh, the Portuguese were a couple of letters exchanged between Savimbi and Portuguese generals published in uh, 75 in Africa Z, which is a left-wing magazine in Paris. After that, because they were declassified and leaked, etc., etc., the whole correspondence was made public in the Portuguese press. For instance, uh, in Expresso, which was a middle-of-the-road weekly, the most important weekly in Lisbon, is something that became very well known in Europe by 77, 78. But in the United States, you had an iron curtain between Europe and the United States. And the American press did not report about Savimbi's cooperation with uh, the Portuguese. You have something absurd in the mid-1980s, for instance, articles in the Washington Post, the New York Times, saying that Savimbi had nationalist credentials as good or better than those of the leaders of the MPLA. Uh, so you have this guy, Savimbi, who cooperated with the Portuguese and educated American public opinion. U.S. officials either didn't know or they had forgotten. 
I interviewed a guy, a very, uh, who at several hours, who was uh, the CIA analyst of Angola, main analyst in the 1980s. And I asked him, did you know that Savimbi had worked with the Portuguese? Because I read some of the reports he had written about Savimbi credentials, national credentials. He said, no. I said, uh, did you get a briefing when you got the job? He said, well, yeah, I got a briefing about the situation in Angola today, present situation. And he was coming from, he had been an expert on the Soviet Union, and he never had the time to look at the archives. So basically, there was a complete ignorance about Savimbi's uh, past. You have a conversation of... Uh, the, the Portuguese special assist, the special assistance of the Portuguese president in 1982, and Wisner, who was the deputy assistant secretary for Africa, and uh, the Portuguese guy tells Wisner, "But you people should be a, remember that Savimbi cooperated with the Portuguese. Dempiele hates him with good reason." And Wisner writes a report. That's where I write this uh, conversation. A report that is in the U.S. archives. So obviously, Chester Crocker read it. That said, no one paid any attention. So you have this absurd situation where uh, Savimbi, not because he was a proxy, in his own interest, cooperated with the Portuguese. You could say, in a way, it's like Benedict Arnold in the United States, in the American War of Independence. The U.S. government didn't know or had forgotten, and the American press didn't know or had forgotten. Can you imagine what a miserable press? The New York Times, the Washington Post, Boston Globe, etc., etc. So this is the, the legend about uh, Savimbi's nationalist credential. And he was also incredibly brutal. He reportedly would burn the wives and children of dissidents alive, and UNITA's military strategy was scorched earth. Yeah, when you interview U.S. officials of the Reagan administration, you have two different interpretations. One, which is a Chester Crocker interpretation, which is to say, oh, they were all bad. Yeah, Savimbi was bad, so were the MPLA guys. You know, they were all bad. So in moral terms, we have nothing to apologize for. And then you have another group of U.S. officials, including the guy who was in 85, 86, the CIA station chief in Kinshasa, who told me at the time I was a supporter of Savimbi. But I'm glad that he did not win because he was so terrible. So much worse. And the evidence that we have, for instance, the memoirs of the British ambassador in Luanda in 84-85, the ambassador of Mar uh, Margaret Thatcher, he wrote, Savimbi was a monster who did unbelievable harm to his people. There was an immense qualitative difference between the leaders of the MPLA and Savimbi. The other virtue of the, uh, the MPLA, besides not being Savimbi, is that they remained loyal to one idea of Agostino Neto. The struggle will end 
with the defeat of apartheid. Despite all the blows they were receiving, the Angolan leaders continued to offer support to the liberation movement of Southern Africa. For instance, the, the South Africa, the guerrillas of Namibia. And this is an immense historical merit of the Angolan government. Yeah, the, the MPLA coming to power marked, you write, quote, a key turning point for the ANC. Why, why was it such a game changer? Where was the anti-apartheid struggle before 75? And what changed so powerfully afterward? Uh, was very low. The level of the struggle was very low. Uh, there was a feeling, basically, the great brutality of the apartheid regime. Uh, what could be done? And all of Southern Africa was dominated by the whites, etc., etc. And then you have a, a number of things that happen. All of a sudden, the white giant, the South African army, is defeated in Angola. There is a look. There was a major black newspaper in South Africa, the world. When I say major black newspapers, the owners were white, I think, but the readership was black. And the journalists were black. And I started reading the world in early 75 to have a feeling about the newspaper. And it was very humble vis-a-vis -vis the government. Didn't dare to challenge the government, anything. And then you see how it starts changing in late 75, when the news coming from Angola, including the communique of the South African military, is that something is wrong in Angola. And then the news that the South African army is retreating. It's retreating because of a non-white army. In February 1976, there are uh, two articles that appear in the South African press, more or less at the same time. One in the Rain Daily Mail, a white newspaper, and it's written by a white military analyst. And it says that for the first time, South Africa is being defeated, and it's being defeated by an army which is not white. Whether... The victory is because of the Angolans or because of the Cubans. The fact is that they're winning, they've won, and they are not white. And white elitism, that feeling of superiority that the whites have enjoyed for centuries, is dissipating. And uh, we have suffered a heavy blow. On the, at the same time, in this African black newspaper, The World, you have an editorial, and I'm trying to remember now to paraphrase, that says, South Africa is riding the crest of a wave generated by the Cuban victory in Angola. South Africa is tasting the heady wine of uh, total liberation. And this is a black newspaper that writes this. And by the way, you can see how they are right they are. It is the Cuban victory in Angola. But the Cubans are not white. And there is a psychological element which is very important, which is uh, a defeat of the, super, of the giant, of uh, a super hombre, of the South African giant. It is the first defeat 
at the hand of non-white people, you know, they'd been defeated in the Anglo, in the war with the Brits at the end of the 19th century, but these was white, were white people. And there is a psychological impact on the South African population. At the same time, you have the great popular revolt in Soweto in uh, the summer of 1975, which are many reasons, just many reasons. But uh, I've read all I could about Soweto. And one of the reasons for Soweto is the Cuban victory in Angola, that the South Africans have been defeated. And this is a psychological support, a very strong element. There are others for there is the victory of Frelimo, the liberation movement in Mozambique, etc. If the Cubans had not intervened, you would have had the victory, another victory of South Africa and Southern Africa. It would have tightened the grip of apartheid over Southern Africa. Whereas the Cuban victory was a blow to apartheid. I personally believe that the reason Fidel decided to intervene in Angola was not mainly or so just to help the MPLA. It was because he understood it was beyond the MPLA. It was a struggle against apartheid, what Fidel has called la causa más bonita de la humanidad, the most beautiful cause of mankind. What was at stake in Angola in 1975, in late 1975, was not just who would rule Angola. It was Southern Africa as a whole, because a victory of South Africa's proxies, of the proxies of the United States and of South Africa, of the axis of evil, would have strengthened the grip of apartheid and demoralized the people in Southern Africa. And the testimony of this is given by South African military intelligence. You have reports that have been declassified that say that uh, what has happened in Angola has demoralized uh, white South African and has given uh, confidence to black South Africans and black people in Southern Africa, uh, what they call the terrorist movements. Let's turn to Namibia. How how did this one-time German colony fall under South African control? And how did South Africa and its allies justify what was clearly, brazenly, an illegal occupation into the 1980s, a moment at which direct rule colonialism had become rather taboo? And why was control of Namibia so important for Pretoria? Okay. When the First World War starts... The South African army invaded uh, Southwest Africa, which, as you said, was a German colony, and it occupied it uh, in a matter of just very few months. And Germany is defeated in the First World War. German colonies are divided among the victors, and South Africa gets uh, Southwest Africa. South Africa has become an important member of the what we call the white commonwealth and uh, that's fine they get southwest africa and they rule it as uh, the fact with the fifth province of south africa as a part of south africa essentially they exploit it economically everything is fine and south african rule in namibia it's, I, I use now namibia because southwest africa is clunky in namibia it's not challenged 
until the mid-1960s. On the international level, you have uh, Ethiopia and I think Liberia, which first challenged the right of South Africa to continue occupying uh, Namibia. And uh, the League of Nations no longer exists. The position of South Africa is, yeah, the League of Nations no longer exists, but we still have the mandate and we remain. And there is really no pressure on South Africa. And the pressure on South Africa begins in the 1970s. First of all, you have the International Court of Justice that says that South Africa's rule over Namibia is illegal. And uh, that, uh, but that's not particularly important. Uh, what is important is that armed struggle begins in a serious way with the independence of Angola, because Angola becomes the real base. And Swapo is they're really of an extreme courage, because they basically penetrated into Namibia. Once the Cubans established their defensive lines 250 kilometers north of the border, the, the territory of the Angolan territory between the Cuban defensive line and the Namibian border is a free fire zone where the South Africans essentially shoot whatever they see. And so for Swapo, to go through this uh, territory, these 250 kilometers, is like going through enemy territory. And then they penetrate in Namibia. And with extreme courage, they are able to maintain this guerrilla struggle, to fight and fight and fight. They are never in a position to overthrow the, Ango- the South African government, I mean the South African military authorities in Namibia, or really to represent a serious military threat. But they are a constant pinprick, constant, 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 which forces South Africa to maintain the, to about 30,000 soldiers in uh, Namibia. Now, this is something that South Africans can live with, but there is the international pressure that is beginning to grow. And so the South Africans decide that they have to find a political solution which will allow them to retain the reality of power. And uh, they create a white uh, political party in uh, Namibia. The Democratic Turnhall Alliance? uh, Which will work with the South African's colonial authority. to create what is called an internal solution, elections controlled by South Africa, which will give this party and minor parties allied a majority in an assembly which will be just at the orders of the South African. Uh, there is an administ- like a governor, the South African governor, etc., etc. And there is international pressure that's growing. But, you know, the United, we're talking the Carter administration. The Carter administration doesn't want a confrontation with South Africa. The Carter administration doesn't want to impose sanctions on South Africa, nor do America's Western allies. And so what you have are negotiations with South Africa that lead nowhere. 
you have small divisions within the cartel administration. Again, the dominant voice is Brzezinski, and Brzezinski's position is if sanctions against the communists, never sanctions against South Africa. And so we are us, South Africa, trying to achieve some moderate solution internationally acceptable in Namibia, but we don't apply any pressure. So you have a situation under Carter in which relations of the Carter administration with South Africa are frigid. We bother the South Africans, but they're not willing to apply any real pressure. And the South Africans essentially realize that they can do within limits what they want. And they keep trying to create this internal solution, the so-called Turnal Alliance, a combination of a white political party and tame non-white political party based on different ethnies, Nama, Herrero, etc., etc., that is willing to play South Africa's game. Let's turn to the Cuba-Soviet relationship. You write that the U.S. was committed to portraying Cuba as a Soviet proxy force in the region, even though U.S. intelligence knew this was entirely wrong. You write, quote, Castro had defied Leonid Brezhnev by sending troops to Angola in November 1975, and he defied Gorbachev in November 1987 when he decided to send important reinforcements to Angola to push the South Africans out of the country once and for all. At the very moment, Gorbachev wanted desperately to foster detente with Washington. And then back in 75 again, Brezhnev had been focused on negotiating the SALT II arms control treaty with U.S. President Gerald Ford, and Brezhnev only embraced the Cuban intervention you write after the fact, when the Cubans had won. But then again, once again in 76, the Soviets encouraged Cuba to withdraw again, and Cuba defied the Soviets. Given this reality, why did the U.S. insist on framing Cubans as mercenaries or proxies, even though they knew this was false? Well, imagine you are the U.S. government. Imagine you are Kissinger or uh, Ford. You've been humiliated. You haven't even been defeated by the Soviet Union. You've been defeated by what was essentially a former colony of the United States. Psychologically, the best thing is to say he's a puppet, is to insult him. I mean, it helps psychologically. In any case, you certainly don't intend to have any constructive negotiation with Cuba because they've defeated you. They humiliated you. So you accuse them of being proxy. What is the loss? You don't want to have any negotiation with this miserable country. Uh, it's a psychological benefit, that's all. American intelligence has actually... The, look, the most interesting... I'm sorry for jumping forward. During the Carter administration, in the National Security Council, in the staff, you had the staff person for Latin America, Robert Pastor. You know, it's a position can be influential or not. It depends on your relationship with the National Security Advisor. And the pastor had a good relationship with Brzezinski, and he was a very intelligent man. And there is a memo, I'm going to paraphrase now. I wish I could find immediately the page in my book. In 78, a memo addressed to Brzezinski by pastor, where he says we should stop calling the Cuban proxies. It is not true. Actually, uh, 
it is they who lead the Soviet Union more often than the Soviet Union leads them. It is similar to our relationship with Israel. Right. And uh, Pastor was a hard line, but he was an honest guy. But again, if you are in the position of Carter Brzezinski, uh, it looks good in terms of American public opinion because they're being tough. I mean, what are you going to tell American public opinion? Actually, we don't like this guy, but he's independent from the Soviet Union. American will say, what is this? So you insult him as much as possible. If uh, Castro had been willing to negotiate Angola with the United States, Carter would have stopped uh, saying that he was a proxy. But when you have a defeat and you don't know what to say, you say it's a proxy, uh, whether you believe it or not. Now, I have no idea whether in 75 or 76 Kissinger believes that uh, Fidel Castro was a proxy. In his memoirs, in the last volume of his memoirs, is one of the very few occasions where he says, I, I was wrong. He says, I said that Fidel Castro was a proxy. Actually, it was an operation decided by the Cubans who confronted the Soviet Union with the fait accompli. And then he asked the question, why did Fidel Castro do it? And the answers, that's uh, paraphrasing Kissinger, that Fidel Castro was the most genuine revolutionary leader then in power. That Kissinger. Uh, if you want to talk about the idealism of the Cuban foreign policy, you don't even need to read Gleyes. All you need to do is to read Kissinger. He says it very clearly in his memoirs. He defied uh, Brezhnev. Why? Because he was the most genuine revolutionary leader then in power. What does it mean, the struggle against apartheid? What were the basic differences in Cuba and the Soviet Union's approaches to dealing with the United States, on the one hand, and third world liberation struggles on the other? And then what material or ideological or geopolitical interests drove Cuba and the Soviet Union, respectively, to support third world liberation struggles in places like Angola? So let's start with this thing of the 1960s. Where do you have the differences? In terms of Latin America, the Cuban... First of all, there is something the CIA and INR, Intelligent Research. Look, when I want to talk, when I write, when I want to talk about the motivations of Cuban foreign policy, you know, if I use what the Cubans say, one can say it's biased. The best source is the CIA. What did the CIA and INR, Intelligence and Research of the State Department, say about the motivation of Cuban policy in the Third World in the 1960s? They saw two main reasons. One was self-defense. The United States was refusing to negotiate with Cuba for a modus vivendi, and therefore Cuba's position was, we're going to respond wherever we can. Uh, you know, the idea, a second Vietnam, a third Vietnam, etc., etc. And this meant, obviously, you cannot launch covert operation against Miami because the Americans are launching paramilitary operation against Cuba because it would be suicidal. But you respond to the United States in the third world, trying to support guerrilla movements, government hostile to the United States, friendly to Cuba, etc., etc. But there is another reason that the 
CIA and INR repeatedly stressed. And this is the idealism of the Cuban revolution, of the Cuban leadership. And that is that the Cubans believed, Fidel Castro believed, that Cuba had a duty to help other people to liberate themselves. The main burden of the struggle belonged to the people of a country. But the Cubans had the duty to help. And this is not what I say. This is what the CIA wrote about the motivation of Cubans' foreign policy. You don't have, as far as I know, a single CIA document that says Fidel Castro is acting as the proxy of the Soviet Union. Not one. Now, uh, and this explains Cuba's support for armed struggle in Latin America. Now, what happens with the Soviet Union? At the beginning, the Soviet Union is sympathetic to the Cuban approach, support for guerrilla struggle, say, 61, 62, 63. And then the Soviet Union starts thinking... <laughs> This is not a good idea. It's not a good idea for several reasons. One is not working. The, the Soviet correctly realized that uh, the Cuban approach to guerrilla warfare is not working. Point one. Point two. Uh, this policy of Fidel is not supported by the majority of the Communist Party in Latin America, which are pro-Soviet and don't want to be bothered by Castroite guerrilla groups. Second reason. Third, the Soviet Union decides by the mid-1960s that they want to make a diplomatic offensive in Latin America to establish diplomatic relations. You have a speech by Fidel, I think it's August 1966, which says this is absurd. The Soviet Union offers loans to the government of Colombia, which is killing the guerrillas. You see, Fidel was not like the West European governments. The West European governments, with the limited exception of the goal, never dared to criticize the United States. Fidel criticized the United States openly, wanted to be really living in another world to say that Cuba was a proxy of the Soviet Union. So these were the three reasons. And so you have a difference. In the case of Africa in the 1960s, you don't have a difference. The Cuban paramilitary operations in Africa, in Congo, in the former Belgian Congo, in uh, 65, Guinea-Bissau, were made uh, without uh, even informing at the beginning the Soviet Union and without support from the Soviet Union were small covert operations Cuba could pay for it, etc., etc. But there were no differences with the Soviet Union. The Soviets also supported the guerrilla movement in Guinea-Bissau. The Cubans, the Soviets also supported the guerrillas in Congo, Leopoldville. So in Africa, you don't have conflict between Cuba and the Soviet Union in the 1960s. You have conflict in Latin America. And Fidel Castro keeps following following the policy he believes in until with the death of Che Guevara and uh, the blow suffered by the guerrillas in Venezuela and Guatemala, he concludes that the Cuban approach to armed struggle in Latin America has failed. 
And by the early 1970s, you have a situation in which there are no differences, major difference, no difference actually at all in foreign policy in the third world between Cuba and the Soviet Union. In uh, Africa, Cuba is supporting the guerrillas in Guinea-Bissau. That's the Cuban military presence. The Soviet Union is very sympathetic. In Latin America, there are no differences. Cuba is giving some very limited support to the Tupamaros, but it's nothing major. And then you have Angola, 75. And what is the problem with Angola in 75? And this, uh, and you kind of quoted it already, it's said very clearly by Colby, the director of the CIA director at a national security meeting in July 1975. The obsession of Brezhnev in 1975 is the salt to treaty, is the taunt with the United States. Colby said, and more or less quoting, that Brezhnev is sick, there is the Congress of the Soviet Communist Party that is going to be in February 1976 because Brezhnev is sick, he thinks it will be his last Congress, and he wants to go with a salt treaty, a salt to treaty. And the Soviets uh, mistrust the MPLA. The Soviets mistrust the MPLA because the MPLA is too independent. The Soviets in the third world, in Africa at least, if you were a strong guerrilla movement, then they would not try to give you orders. They never gave any order to the guerrilla movement of Guinea-Bissau. They wouldn't even think about it. Uh, but the Angolan MPLA was a weak guerrilla movement. And so they were pestering uh, NATO to take anti-Chinese position, to say this and that. So what you have essentially in late 75, to make a long story short, you have this Fidel Castro start sending troops to Angola, doing something that clearly is going to be a blow to the taunt. When I interviewed a guy who became a very close friend of mine, Horary Skate, that time who was just an interview, he told me, yeah, of course we didn't tell the Soviets we were intervening. Because we were sending troops. What the Soviets were focused on the taunt. And what we were going to do went against the taunt. And so, one, uh, the Cubans do something that is going to affect the taunt. And two, for a moment, the Soviets don't trust. And so the Soviets are upset. And then what happens? The Cubans send their troops. They don't receive any logistic support by the Soviet Union for uh, more than two months, even so the weak Angola. At the same time, the Ford administration has decided to freeze the SALT negotiations. Brezhnev goes to the Congress uh, of the Communist Party. He has to go with a victory. Uh, he cannot go with SALT, so he goes with Angola, as if Angola were a Soviet success. <laughs> and the Cubans have learned, uh, have learned how to deal with the Soviet Union. So fine, uh, <clears throat> Brezhnev wants to appropriate the glory of the victory in Angola. Fine. Havana is not going to contradict him. The Angolans know who won. The Africans know who won, etc., etc. So that's where you have a difference. And then, you know, when we talk to you the next time, if you want, we can see how this situation develops. 
That was episode one of my interview with Piero Glieses on his book, Visions of Freedom. Episode two will be posted sometime soon over the next week. Piero Glieses is a professor of American foreign policy at John Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies. He's the author of many books, including Visions of Freedom, Havana, Washington, Pretoria, and the Struggle for Southern Africa, 1976 to 1991. And most recently, America's Road to Empire, foreign policy from independence to World War I. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after asking, if emancipation of the working classes requires their fraternal concurrence, how are they to fulfill that great mission with a foreign policy in pursuit of criminal designs, playing upon national prejudices, and squandering in piratical wars the people's blood and treasure? While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Gemma Sack. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also rate and review us. Nice ratings and nice reviews ostensibly introduce us to new listeners, but what really and truly does that is you telling other people in real life about why you listen to the podcast, why they should listen to the podcast. Please make propaganda for us. And please do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 